Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. This is The Hash Podcast. Stay informed with the latest on Bitcoin, ETH, the Metaverse, Web3, and more with stories that matter to the crypto world, all on The Hash for your ears. You're listening to the Coindesk Podcast Network. Hello, happy Tuesday, and welcome to The Hash here on Coindesk TV. It has been a wild one. We are back from consensus, back in our normal little worlds with so much chaos going on in the markets. I'm Zach Seward. We have Will Foxley, Jensen Assey, and Wendy O. We're going to break it down for you today, starting off with Will. Will, take it away. Starting off with some bad news after a great weekend in Austin, Texas for consensus, and that is Coinbase is laying off about 18% of its staff or 1,100 people. The exchange has hired about 5,000 so far. Uh, with even 1,000 hired last quarter, but it seems that they need to make some changes based on market sentiment. Brian Armstrong, the CEO of Coinbase, went on Twitter talking about this event, saying that market sentiment has changed and that the exchange needs to make decisions that best fit the economic activity at the moment. He's saying after a 10-year bull run, we're probably going into recession, and Coinbase needs to be agile in the face of that. Zach, I want to throw this one over to you. We've seen Coinbase now, Gemini, Crypto.com announced some layoffs. Seems a lot of these exchanges are laying off a lot of staff because they got too big and thought things were going to continue. That's right. BlockFi too. When Gemini came out, they were sort of the first uh, canary in a coal mine. They said, hey, we're cutting 10% of staff. Coinbase was quick to say, hey, we're not doing similar cuts. We're going to do uh, some some uh, cost-cutting measures, uh, some freezes, rescind some existing offers, but we're not going to do layoffs. This is a major about-face on that, and this is pretty bad news for folks who woke up this morning unable to access their company systems and now are scrambling to find something new. So this is a big one. I think it does speak to, again, really the rapid growth that we saw from some of these big companies in the space, realizing that maybe, hey, we went a little hard there, and now these are the necessary measures that come in response to a pretty gruesome downturn in the markets, both in crypto, but also uh, in the broader world of equities and whatnot. So interesting to see, definitely feeling for these folks this morning. Uh, These are families, people who suddenly have to go find new things to do. Tossing it to you, Jen. Yeah, the fact that the communication around this was done over email felt so disheartening and so tone deaf. This is over a thousand employees that are not going to have a livelihood and the communication came solely by email. You would think that there would be some kind of 
internal communications. We spoke about how there seems to be a lack of proper internal communications at Coinbase last week when we were in consensus. And this just kind of solidifies that for me. During the bull market, it feels like everyone is just out there acting a little bit like they're drunk. You see startup founders at conferences who have barely raised a seed round, renting Porsches and driving around. And then you see the CEO of Coinbase buying $100 million homes in Hollywood and and everyone is hiring and everyone feels like they're rich. It is, again, disheartening because this has happened before and it doesn't seem like anyone, big or small, are taking learnings away from, you know, when this happened in 2017, it's, it's happening again, it will happen in the future. And so I hope that we can look at this and we can plan so that people don't have to lose their jobs in the, um, in the future. But Wendy, I'll toss it up to you. So this is very problematic to me. And one of the reasons why it's problematic is obviously in the news, we see that Brian Armstrong did in fact buy, I believe it was a $133 million home in Los Angeles, which is absolutely ridiculous. Um, because if you break that down, you, you can see what that cost, how that could have been used to maybe keep these employees on staff. Another very problematic thing for me personally is seeing these OG veterans in the space that know how crypto works. They know how market cycle works. These people are supposed to be smart in economics and understand how you know, market cycles and all, how all this works. And the fact that they weren't able to successfully plan and they're using this as an excuse, to me, that just doesn't sit right with me. Because when I think about crypto, when I think about Bitcoin, I feel like we're all trying to get away from these other third-party oppressive industries but we're just kind of taking what we're comfortable with and we're making poor excuses for our bad behavior and just bringing it in into crypto. And it doesn't have to be this way. Me personally, I have been able to save enough to keep everybody on my payroll afloat through these next two years. So I'm not understanding why a small fish like myself could do it, but these big guys are having problems doing it. Yeah, I'll pick it up there. I, I think that people just get ahead of their skis, right? They think that things are going to continue. They think they can, the casino lights can keep going on, but things drop fast, and then they drop further than you expect them to go. So if you look at Coinbase, a lot of their revenue was pulled from exchange from exchange fees for tokens that are basically going to be worthless, if not already worthless at this point, right? They started listing a lot of assets that were just sort of out there. Nobody had heard of them. And that became a good portion of the revenue. Bitcoin, other things like that, obviously are still in their books, but there's a lot of options now. There's a lot of competitors. FTX overtook Coinbase in terms of volume last month in May uh, for the first time. And so like, there's a lot of competitors out there. A lot of their product offerings are not as competitive as they used to be. And then you overhire. I think it just comes down to like the nature of a corporation, right? You get really big, you start hiring a lot of people. Hiring managers are maybe not on top of things as much as they should be. Brian Armstrong isn't overlooking every single action item. You know, it's a 5,000 person company and then inertia takes its way. And you have to go through these callings. It's extremely unfortunate and it is bad management, but I think it is also part just being a part of a corporation. Yeah, one last note there. Going to be watching closely on the competitive front. We heard, you know, Binance CEO uh, CZ go out there and say, hey, we're hiring. We heard FTX US CEO Brett Harrison say, hey, we're looking at these people who are laid off. I'm going to be watching whether or not those proclamations are walked back or if they ultimately follow suit and announce some cuts that we've seen from Coinbase, BlockFi, Crypto.com, and others. All right, let's change gears. We're going to regulatory land with Wendy. We do have to always talk about Mr. <clears throat> Gary, and I will leave it at that. But Gary Gensler warns about crypto lenders offering sky-high returns. So basically, he has been in power. He has been the SEC chief since April of 2021, which is actually a very controversial thing that occurred. A lot of people in crypto thought it was bullish because they thought, yay, Gary. But because he's been, you know, in Ethereum, been in the ecosystem. 
But at the same time, there's a lot of people who weren't happy about it, weren't excited about it. But he basically says that he has had concerns over interest rate pledges. And considering that Bitcoin has plunged to its lowest level since December 2020, and we're currently trading at approximately $22,700, and we did get a swing with low, I believe $20,000 later last night. But they're basically just talking about how unsafe crypto is. And I think that they're using this narrative of the volatility in the market, the things occurring with big players in the space to kind of really push and get their regulation in. Another tidbit of information here is he stated they're operating a little bit like banks. He said her remarks delivered virtually at the RFK Human Rights Compass Summer Investors Conference. I caution the public, which that's a reasonable thing to say. But at the same time, when you look at the stock market, when you look at the money printing, when you look at the credit card debt in the United States, a lot of people kind of flock from these traditional financial systems to crypto as a safe haven. So it's kind of a pick between who's a bad guy and who's a good guy, and you have to pick sides. I actually want to go ahead and toss this over to Jen for her thoughts. So I read this, and this is the first time I didn't read something that Gary Gensler said and just like almost have my head explode. I think he's right, right? These lenders are operating a little bit like banks and it's good for him to, I think, to say it in public. I think what he's cautioning against is fine, but I do think that regulators are getting the ammunition they need right now to do what they've been petitioning for for a really long time. So everything they were petitioning for in the bull market, they're going to be able to put in place during the bear market because people are losing and they're losing a lot of money. And so I have this quote here from Yahoo Finance report. A Biden official said recent events, Celsius and US Terra only reinforce the need for a regulatory framework for digital assets. These events bolster the case for action and the need to mitigate risks of these assets. So now if we look at Celsius, they've always been very vocal about how they're using money and how they are basically a hedge fund. But I think that when people are kind of aping into these projects, not really understanding what they're getting into, they don't realize that that's what's happening. And so I think, again, that this is just a call for education. Know what you're getting into. Know how these companies operate and what's going to happen should there be a bear market. I'll jump in. I'll pick it up. I think this is very like a lagging indicator. I mean, Gary, you know, it's hard to say, right? I think, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty, right? And we're going to see a lot of sort of chess something I told you so out in the market today. But Gensler, I think, is not wrong to be warning of these things, right? We've seen some questionable practices out of some of these companies in the past. We've seen these too good to be true APYs that ultimately don't pan out very well for some users who jump in and treat these products as though they are for their life savings. So I think uh, the role of the regulator here is to sort of make these proclamations when people are most receptive to hearing it. And now might be that time. Is now the best time to do that? If you're someone who had already locked funds into Celsius and now you have trouble? No. But is it going to be the time when we hear it? Yes. And I think we're going to be hearing a lot of it in the coming days. Will, sorry, back to you. It's like the scolding dad. He's going to tell you it later when you're on your, your lowest <laughs> lows. Uh, I want to go back in the history books really quick, though, to BlockFi, $100 million fine from the SEC and also was followed up by some regulators in Texas. I think Alabama and maybe was New Jersey, but Zach can fact check me there. Uh, and why is because they're offering these interest products that the SEC and these local government agencies, uh, these, these state agencies were saying were more like securities than they were some sort of interest scheme like a bank. And so I think that this was put forward earlier in the bull market and nobody wanted to hear it, right? Everyone was pissed off at that fact that BlockFi was getting tackled. BlockFi at Celsius, similar concepts. I think the organization of the two are very different. I don't think we should uh, impute anything between the two of them at all. 
but they're both lenders at the end of the day. And so I do think that when you see things like the SEC coming knocking on doors earlier in the bull market, and you see things like Celsius are breaking apart at the end of a bull market, that sort of tells you what is what. Like there's probably something going on inside all these systems earlier and nobody's receptive to it. To your point, Zach, no one's receptive to it. On the BlockFi thing, that's all speculation. I have no inside knowledge of how BlockFi works, not saying anything about them. But just bringing up this point again, that the SEC had been doing this and people just don't care in a bull market and they get agitated. Wendy, I'll throw it up to you. My last statements regarding this is if Gary was so concerned about protecting investors, especially the retail, why didn't they come out with regulations faster? Why didn't they come out with some sort of framework? Why didn't they, you know, why didn't they do more to protect? That's my only gripe that I have is because you could come out and say, this is bad. I'm an advice caution, whatever it is. But somebody with the power that Gary has, the fact that they didn't actually take action fast enough, I feel like some of the responsibility does fall on them at the same time. I'll pick that up. I mean, I think that is a good point when you look at, you know, regulating by enforcement and not regulating with clear, actionable guidance, right? So I think what we've seen from both the Gensler SEC and before him with uh, Chairman Jay Clayton was regulation by enforcement, right? Where we, you know, we ding the bad actors after it's after the, after the fact, rather than prescribing something that may actually fit for this new set of digital assets for the long run. So going to be interesting to see if any of this uh, changes that, that, uh, that dynamic, but who knows? Let's talk about MicroStrategy, the business services company out in Northern Virginia that has become a major Bitcoin bull in this latest run. But now with Bitcoin trading in the 22,000s, there are questions as to whether or not MicroStrategy will be faced with a margin call where it has to put up more collateral to justify its holdings. So MicroStrategy CEO Michael Saylor says, don't worry guys, we got this. There's plenty of collateral that we can turn to. And also we sort of devised this strategy where we can hodl through adversity in times such as this. So interesting to hear these conversations unfolding. We heard some uh, reports not long ago from, I think, the MicroStrategy CFO outlining at what price point uh, the potential margin call would, would come to pass. And I think it was around somewhere in the 21,000s. But Michael Saylor is out here uh, defending his company's strategy in amassing a giant trove of Bitcoin. I'm going to toss this straight to Will for his thoughts on MicroStrategy here in this moment. What are you looking for as it relates to this story? Yeah, interesting point I found out this morning on Twitter. Shout out to Data Always, a nice Twitter account. Is that MicroStrategy's stock is actually at the same return point as it was when it first purchased Bitcoin or prior to right when it purchased Bitcoin. So it's like it's zero, right? It's flat. It went through this crazy up and down. Uh, it's been all over the place tracking Bitcoin, mostly up for the last two years. But since it first announced purchases of Bitcoin onto its balance sheet, its stock is flat. Turning point back to the story here, though, in terms of like the margin call, we've had two numbers floating around, right? We had the CFO, uh, who I think is now has left MicroStrategy. I think it's ex-CFO. Uh, yeah, former CFO said in a uh, investor's call that the margin call was around $21,000 per Bitcoin. And then Michael Saylor later came out on a Twitter thread and said it was around $3,000 per coin and that they had more than enough collateral, both in Bitcoin and other assets, to be able to back up that margin call. So two different story points. I actually want to go with Michael Saylor's take on this as a CEO. I'm assuming he knows the books a little bit better. Uh, who knows what's up with the, the other point? Maybe it's like part of their book at that $22,000 level. I don't know. It's hard to say, right? Uh, it is interesting, though, at the very least, to say that like the largest Bitcoin holder in terms of like this corporation level stuff is facing headwinds they did not foresee. 
Uh, not that long ago, they said that $21,000 per Bitcoin was not something they predicted. I uh, did not foresee Bitcoin going to that low price level. And now we're having this conversation. Wendy, I'll throw it up to you. Okay, so <laughs> as somebody who actively <laughs> trades and who actively looks at the market. Wendy is exasperated. She is. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, I'm getting the vapors. No, I just don't understand how you, like, how you can talk in absolutes. The fact that you have so much capital and a lot of this is collateralized and you're telling people to mortgage their houses, to do all of these crazy things. And you're saying, and you're speaking in absolutes. That's not smart. There's just something you should not do. You should always have a bullish and a bearish scenario. I will say, I put out a tweet earlier saying that I do respect Michael Saylor to an extent because he is like full on, I love Bitcoin. I'm buying more. I'm going to defend. I'm going to do whatever it takes. I'm going to protect Bitcoin at all costs. So that's admirable. But at the same time, there has been some sort of shady practices regarding, you know, I'm going to, you know, telling people to mortgage their houses, you know, all of those types of crazy things. And, but you never want to speak in absolutes. You always need to have a bullish and a bearish plan. And I just hope there is a war going on on chain and you could monitor all of it. And it's just kind of crazy to see all of the DeFi applications and all of the fighting between all of these different parties. So I'm taking a step back and I'm watching this and don't ever invest or trade in absolutes, guys. Please do not. I'm going to go ahead and toss this, I guess, too. Who wants Who wants it? Jen or Zach? Fight, fight, fight. Who wants I, I can take it. Did, did Michael Saylor tell people to mortgage themselves? I totally missed that. That is a bunch of people in my mentions have said, hey, Wendy, hey, Wendy, you shouldn't say that you respect Michael Saylor. And I'm like, I do. I, I respect his I respect his love for Bitcoin. I don't know, man. I'm just I'm taking a step back and I'm watching. Yeah. I, as as the price started to plummet and it got closer and closer to that twenty one thousand number, Michael Saylor was the first person I thought about, sadly. Like I probably should have thought about people who I actually know. But that was the first I was like twenty one thousand. Oh my gosh, what's going to happen? And Will, to your point, I think that the CFO would have a better insight into what number they would have to hit to do a margin call over the CEO. But that's just. But it was, at a, it was at a later date. And we're seeing that's actually. True. That's true. Just getting some info in right now that Hong oh. Lee is still with MicroStrategy. They're just not oh. the president, not the CFO. So they're still with the firm. So the firm. There we but go. when we have two numbers, that's the thing, right? We got two numbers yep. and they're both from two official sources and one came after the other. So I, I'm inclined to believe the second rather than the first, because sometimes you make a mistake, you need to correct it a little bit, but it's also hard to I, know. Yeah. I'm just done hearing about MicroStrategy's Bitcoin strategy. <laughs> I want to hear about their business strategy. What's the business? It's their NFT strategy. <laughs> what, yeah. What are they doing in NFTs? Are they entering the metaverse? I'm just done talking about this Bitcoin thing. But Wendy, you have something to add. <laughs> Maybe they're going to participate in Web5. Is that the new thing that we're yeah. doing? Bitcoin mm. is Web5. <laughs> and what, Zach, can you repeat those liquidation prices again? Let's look somebody at it or Will, somebody, it, anybody? It was Will. Me. Will was looking. Was Will like, had the three. I'm, I'm aware of the 21. So, Will, you got it. Yeah, the 2100 number was by the former CFO, now president of MicroStrategy back in April, I believe, maybe it was early May with all the Terra Luna stuff. And then Michael Saylor later came out a little bit after that and said, no, our margin call is down as low as $3,300 or thereabouts. I'm just giving a rough number. And they had over 100,000 Bitcoin they could deposit as collateral against that. So the, I think it was for the senior notes that they had outstanding. Again, if anyone's watching this, just do your own research and go check it out. But I think those are the numbers that I believe he put out in that tweet. All right, let's stay in the land of true Bitcoin believers, but this time in El Salvador. Jen, what's going on down there? 
Yeah, so I said Michael Saylor was the first person who popped into my head as the price plummeted. And the second group of people were the people in El Salvador. So El Salvador's finance minister, Alejandro Zelaya, says that the Bitcoin crash poses extremely minimal fiscal risk for the country. Now, this despite the country's Bitcoin investments being worth roughly half of what they paid, Zelaya said at a press conference, when they tell me there's financial risk for El Salvador because Bitcoin is really high, the only thing I can do is smile, adding that the financial risk, again, is extremely minimal. Wendy, I'm going to pass this one off to you to get us started. What, what do you think of what the finance minister is saying? All right. I've got a lot to say on this because I absolutely support what the president of El Salvador is doing. And one of the reasons why is because they are a very, very small country. They have kind of been shafted by most of the world. And the fact that they see a problem with the U.S. dollar, they see a problem with inflation, they see a big problem with global economies, and they took a step back. And he said, I'm going to go ahead, I'm going to do something a little bit different. And I'm going to do this to try to provide a better quality of life for my people. And he got a lot of heat for it, a lot of people, especially on all over the internet. And I can understand that. But at the same time, you can't sit stagnant and you can't rely on somebody to fix your problems for you. And Bitcoin really was created for the people, by the people, to help people that have been oppressed to kind of get out of these ruts. So if their financial person that's in charge is saying, you know what, it's not really a big risk, we're going to be okay, then I'm going to take a step back and I'm going to, you know, listen to that piece of information. Obviously, I'm going to look at other sources. But at the same time, I don't think that he's just going to put all this money in and really damage his people. There has to be some sort of plan. A lot of people like to sleep on, on El Salvador and the Latino community and not really include them in a whole lot of things crypto. And I think that that is a very, very big mistake. And I think that El Salvador will go down in the history books to be one of those who fought for what's right. So I'm 100% here for it. And I'm happy to know that they are going to be okay, regardless of the price of Bitcoin today. I'd love to hear from a business owner in El Salvador, because at the very beginning of all of this, there was that law that said, if you own a business, you have to accept Bitcoin. And it was very contentious. And that law, as far as I know, never actually changed in writing. It changed because the president tweeted, if you don't want to do this, you don't have to. And so I wonder if there are business owners who felt inclined to accept Bitcoin as legal tender when maybe they didn't want to. And now they are experiencing the bear market and maybe didn't feel prepared. This is just what I'm wondering. I don't know if anyone has any insight into how people are handling this down in El Salvador. Well, I'll pass it down to you. I have no insights into that, but we can- I thought I saw your hand go up. I do. I just have another point. I have another point I'd like to make, and that's about where El Salvador is in terms of its larger outstanding loans. So IMF, World Bank, all those guys are like trying to put money into El Salvador. They're also trying to get money back out of El Salvador because they've invested there, trying to help with like, uh, things like food security, security of the regions, and those have costs and there's interest payments on those things. And so we've seen some headlines recently about like those larger players wanting to help El Salvador, but they're not happy with the Bitcoin purchases the country has made. And now we're at a point where Bitcoin has crashed even more so, and those people are going to be even more unhappy. So I'm expecting much more headlines about the Bitcoin purchases El Salvador has made even though it is a tiny percentage of their nation's wealth, right? $40 million is not that much money in the grand scheme of things, especially for El Salvador. Like there's Bitcoin traders who have more of that in their regular PA accounts than El Salvador does. But it doesn't matter. These bigger players are going to want to use this as an edge against El Salvador when it comes to getting these loan books out. Zach, I'll throw it to you for last thoughts on this one though. 
Yeah, I was going to shout out some reporting that Bloomberg did. They actually went on the ground there with a video and they talked to some merchants who were accepting Bitcoin and it presented like just a really nice uh, array of opinions about the whole thing. You know, I think there are some folks who are, you know, using uh, this introduction to Bitcoin as a way to trade and accrue financial wealth. But of course, there are others who are saying in just this scenario, I don't want to accept Bitcoin because if it goes down 50% again, that the value of my of my time and my services have been greatly devalued. I'd rather accept it in the existing currency options that are available to me. So I think these are the things that are playing out in the minds of merchants everywhere across El Salvador and elsewhere. And it speaks again to this bigger idea that crypto volatility really stifles the payments use case, even with Bitcoin, which is the biggest, uh, the biggest and oldest cryptocurrency in the world, right? This type of volatility in terms of accepting it for payment makes it like poses these sort of mental challenges to like what, what the value is in that. So I think some people, again, and shout out to this Bloomberg piece that really did a nice job of interviewing these people on the ground, small businesses there in El Salvador. Some people are saying, okay, yeah, I can tolerate this volatility. Others are saying, no, 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 no. I want this in dollars so that I can feed my family tonight. And I think that's a conversation that's going to play out much more as this price volatility continues to rear its ugly head. But I want to give Wendy the last word on this one. I do believe that they do have some sort of system, some infrastructure in place where these people that are accepting Bitcoin, they can go to their local bank and swap it for whatever currency that they do want to accept. And also, too, stable coins do kind of solve a problem with Bitcoin volatility. You're able to swap that pretty easily on most exchanges for the most part. So there's that piece of information I wanted to drop before we left. All right. Good stuff. We'll leave it there. That was a good piece of information. We will wrap it. That is the show for today. We are back doing the hash. All right. I'm Zach. That's Will. There's Wendy. There's Jen. We'll be back tomorrow. Check us out on the podcast network if you haven't already. And we hope that you had a lovely consensus if you were there or if you were watching it online. There was so much going on and a lot of good information was shared. Good times, folks. All right. Let's all go take a nap. And we'll see you again tomorrow. You've been listening to The Hash on the Coindesk Podcast Network. We would like to hear from you. So if you have any questions or comments, please reach out to us at podcasts at coindesk.com, subject line, The Hash, or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening.